The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, brought to you by Narcanon Suncoast. Hello, Jason. Hello, Joni. Here we are. Yes, this is episode number 63. And I want to say it is sweltering in this state. Oh. I forget every year how bad the summers are. I know, I do too. And someone posted on Facebook, they said, this heat should be illegal. It should and I be. thought, you know... That's really a good thing. That's true. It's unbelievable. It should be illegal. It's like every winter, I'm like, oh, the summers aren't that bad, forgetting how bad it was the year before. I know, right? But, I mean, summertime, okay, so it's summertime. This is the time where um, lots of people really get into their addictions because they want to party it up for summer. It starts the you know the parties and the binge drinking. Um, and this is where I personally had my first run-ins with drugs as a kid, where summertime parties Amongst my friends. Oh, interesting. Uh, and it's, there's the idea that, hey, it's summer. We're going to cut loose. We're going to relax. Um, and it seems like ethics and morals seem to be just well, laxed a little bit. Interesting. In celebration of it's summer. Uh, and so I know a lot of people out there are going to get into their first drugs. They're, they're going to experiment for the first time. There's going to be that college kid that goes away for summer and gets his first oxy or gets his... Uh, first Xanax or whatever. And then, so a lot of people think, well, you know, this is not the time to go to treatment and handle my life and really figure things out. It's the time to cut loose and let it all hang out and go to a party and do this. And I want to just speak broadly, <laughs> be careful, everything in moderation. If you find that something is getting out of control, you can't handle it becomes too much. You can do something about it. Even though it's summer. You can call 877-339-3324 and speak anonymously to Jason Good. That's right. And Jason, well done on the panel. You Thank were on you. this week. That over was... In, over in Tampa talking about drug addiction with a couple of guys from law enforcement, mm -hmm. which I thought was very good. Interestingly enough, there was a woman who just looked for events in the Tampa Bay area and she just randomly showed up. Mm -hmm. She works for a uh, some kind of a, I think it's Concord Career Opportunities. And she said they have a lot of nurses or people who want to train as nurses. And she thought that this would be a good just a good forum to get some information. Great story herself. She was in a bad car accident a year ago and was prescribed various different painkillers. Um, Xanax was one of them. There mm. were others she couldn't remember the names of. And she said, you know, I just felt like such a zombie and I was so out of it and so unable to function. I went to my doctor and I said, I'm unable to function. I can't I can't live this way. And so she eventually got off the painkillers and, you know, is doing alternatives. And then she mentioned she has a teenage son who's 16, and he had injured his knee in football or snowboarding or something and had to have surgery. Mm -hmm. And so she said, you know, they gave him like a really heavy-duty painkiller. And she said, listen, you know, we're just going to try ibuprofen, <laughs> you know. And she said, truthfully, she said, either he has a really high tolerance for pain or it just really wasn't that bad. But ibuprofen has been just fine for him. So, and I said to her, I said, you know, one of the things we talk about is you have to own your own health. You have to own, you know, you can't just blindly do whatever the doctors tell you to do. Funny, I noticed a little outpoint in what you just said. So she was injured, was given painkillers and Xanax. Xanax is not a painkiller. So that's the, and this is commonly done. This is com right. This is commonly done by doctors. Is Zoloft a painkiller? No, it's antidepressant. Okay, keep going. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was Xanax that she said she was. It no, it probably was yeah. because this is what happens: is a lot of times pain management, you will get a benzo with uh, an opioid, and they're completely contraindicated wow. because 
you give a benzo with an opioid, it increases the uh, the possibility of respiratory arrest. It means you just stop breathing. Um, a lot the one of the most deadly concoctions that we see a lot in Narconon are methadone and Xanax. Okay, that will like more often than not that will kill you. Okay. But that's another thing. That's how doctors start slipping other drugs in. Say, oh well, yeah, oh you must be having some anxiety with your pain because the pain's causing you anxiety. So we're right. also going to give you Xanax, and it's like everyone just be vigilant about what you're being given and yes. ask questions because. You yeah. know, instances like that. Well, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, she was smart enough to realize that she felt like a zombie and didn't really want to go that route. Mm-hmm. So she got off of them. But I thought that was a very interesting story just to totally hear from her right there. She was a very nice lady. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have an interview today. Uh-huh. And this is um, Dave Ehrenberg, and we have interviewed him in the past. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, um, first of all, I would tell you a little bit about Dave, because I found more information about Dave that I thought was kind of interesting. And then we'll do the interview. Okay, cool. Okay. I'm super excited to have on the podcast again today, Dave Ehrenberg. And just to give you a little background on Dave, he was on the podcast earlier, and he's been going all over the country really um, making a lot of noise about sober houses. So I thought it would be good to have him back on today. Dave Ehrenberg was elected state attorney for Florida's 15th Judicial Circuit in November 2012 and was reelected without opposition in 2016. He heads a team of 120 prosecutors and 220 staff in Palm Beach County. Ehrenberg was born in Miami and attended public schools before going on to graduate with honors from Harvard College and Harvard Law School. In 2000, Ehrenberg was selected as one of 15 House White House fellows from across the country. In this nonpartisan position, he served in two presidential administrations as a special assistant to the Secretary of the Treasury Department for international money laundering, including the laundering of terrorist assets. In 2001, Ehrenberg led an investigation into the marketing practices of Purdue Pharma, the manufacturer of the prescription drug OxyContin. We'll ask him more about that. Prior to serving in the Senate, He worked as a lawyer in both the public and private sectors and served as the Florida Attorney General's drug czar in 2012. He is well known as a key figure in wiping out Florida's pill mills. Ehrenberg was elected to the state Senate in 2002 as its youngest member and served until 2010, focusing on criminal justice and consumer protection issues. He passed major identity theft and port security legislation and received national attention for working to close loopholes in our sex offender laws. Well, Dave, thank you so much for being on the podcast again. You are you are my hero, I'll tell you, in the area of battling drug addiction and the various, how can we say, unethical offshoots thereof. Well, thank you, Joni. I, I appreciate that. And, you know, it's uh, been a lifelong passion of mine. I, and I think we're making some progress down here in Palm Beach County, but we've got more work to do. I think so, too. You know, one of the things I was reading, I, I read a little a bio about you before I get you on the phone, and um, Steve sent me a piece of data that I didn't know that said you led an investigation into the marketing practices of Purdue Pharma That's back how I got in 2001. My start fighting opioid abuse. It started back in the year 2000, 2001. It was around then when Attorney General Bob Butterworth he called me into his office and asked me to 
look at a company called Purdue Pharma that was making this new drug called OxyContin. He handed me a magazine article that showed how this drug was uh, leading to deaths in Appalachia and uh, all these people getting addicted to prescription painkillers and asked me to look at the company's marketing practices. And that's what I did. And eventually it ended in a settlement with the company. And, and that's how I started this chapter of my career. And that's about 18 years ago. And now instead of going after the pill mills, which is what I did years later, right. I'm now focusing on fraud and abuse in the drug treatment industry, which sprouted out as a offshoot of the pill mills. You know, once we closed down the pill mills, we then got heroin and uh, heroin spike with fentanyl and Chinese uh, car fentanyl, all these very potent uh, synthetics. And now we're focused on on uh, dealing with the heroin epidemic, but also with fraud and abuse in the drug treatment industry, of which there has been plenty. Yep. Well, I had no idea that you were kind of at the cutting edge, if you will, of this whole thing with Purdue Pharma. And very well done, you, because as we all know, that's kind of what started this whole opioid epidemic. I mean, we've always had issues with cocaine and heroin, but this whole Oxycontin thing really um, kind of lit the spark, I feel, for the whole opi- opioid epidemic. And Purdue Pharma was basically saying that it wasn't addictive. And that was yeah. kind of a bald-faced lie, if you will. Um, also, I wanted... Yeah, but- sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Johnny. I was go just going to say, also, I wanted to tell you well done on winning the... Um, national award from the Coalition Against Insurance Fraud. Well, thank you. That was uh, really quite an honor to get this Apollo Award uh, from a group of individuals who dedicate their lives to fighting insurance fraud. So I was very touched by it, and it just motivates me to keep working hard in this area. Exactly. Well, and explain for me, if you will, how this whole area of insurance fraud ties into addiction. Our focus here at the Palm Beach County State Attorney's Office has been to shut down or arrest or otherwise get rid of the rogue elements in the drug treatment and sober home industries. And what I mean is that when people come down to Florida to get clean, unfortunately, there are a number of providers out there who are trying to exploit these people for their insurance benefits and keep them in a cycle of relapse rather than a model of recovery. And so they encourage relapse, and there's human trafficking and other horrible crimes that exist. And because the victims have a brain disease of addiction, they're too often a willing victim where they're willing to accept the free drugs or the free housing or the free gifts and benefits in exchange for continued relapse because the gravy train continues until that person dies. And that's a tragedy. You have well-intended federal laws that are designed to get people healthy, such as the Affordable Care Act and the Americans with Disabilities Act, that are being exploited, misused by bad actors to cause their demise. So under the Affordable Care Act, there's no limitation on how many times you can go through rehab. And as a result, the bad providers encourage unlimited rehab until you die. And that way, everyone gets rich. The drug user gets drugs. Everyone's happy. Everyone's made is making money at the expense of the ultimate victim and the expense of the American taxpayer, and at the expense of the legitimate providers who lose their clients to the ne'er do wells in the industry who are doing everything the wrong way. Wow, it's almost worse than the pill mills, but 
maybe not quite worse, but equally as bad. Yeah, it's really bad. Uh, back in the pill mill days, when Pam Bondi and I went after these guys, the uh, death rate was about seven deaths a day throughout Florida. But now with heroin, and heroin is now spiked with cheap, potent Chinese fentanyl and carfentanyl, it's now about 14 deaths a day statewide. Uh-huh. So in that sense, it is worse. How does this, how does it, it's criminal, but how does what's happening with these rogue rehabs, how, obviously you're talking from Florida, how is that impacting other states? Are they seeing the same thing? You know, Florida is ground zero for this problem because Florida had a vibrant recovery industry already in place, especially Delray Beach and Palm Beach County. And so when these new federal laws came about, like the Affordable Care Act that created new benefits for those in recovery. You had people converging upon South Florida where people in recovery were here for, you know, for rehab services and taking advantage of them. You know, why do bank robbers rob banks? That's where the money is. You right. know that, that old saying? Yep. Well, that's when people wanted to take advantage of people in recovery. They came down here because that's where the patients were. And so... You had an existing vibrant recovery industry now blown up out of control where you had brokers roaming around streets trying to encourage patients to move into their programs, getting giving and getting kickbacks, and everyone was making money off this. I mean, you have the labs getting kickbacks in some cases for doing the urinalyses that were very lucrative. You had the detox and inpatient centers getting kickbacks and giving kickbacks in some cases, and... You have outpatient treatment providers and sober homes doing the same thing. So this recovery model that was warped into a relapse model. And as a result, you had so many people who, because they had insurance, because they went through rehab, ended up dying. Yeah. And that's such a tragedy. I mean, All these families sending their kids to South Florida to get healthy and instead having them return in the body bag. Wow. That, that's awful. But isn't there already in place a law that um, prohibits kickbacks from rehab centers? Florida had an anti-kickback law, an anti-patient brokering law. But the law was pretty weak, and it took us at least 13 counts in any case to qualify someone for prison time. Oh, so you had wow. weak laws on the books, and they really hadn't been enforced. So what our Sober Homes Task Force did was we started enforcing that law. And we said to everyone at our first meeting, we pronounced publicly, we said, this accepted way of doing business is no longer acceptable in Palm Beach County. Right. Just because everyone else is doing it, you know, when you're driving 80 miles an hour on I-95, tell the cop that everyone else is doing it. And see how far that goes. Yeah, exactly. You're still going to be arrested. Right. And so when we said that, people were shocked. We said, but, but everyone is giving out free gifts and, and free plane tickets to come down to Florida, oh, free transportation. We said, no, you can't do that. Unless there's a specific exemption in the law, uh, you can't give out free benefits to put a head in the bed. You know, you can't give out free gifts. You can't get out, give out kickbacks. Oh. And, and so we, uh, we just helped clean up the industry in part because of that. We just got tough on it, and we we have made 54 arrests since October of 2016. We've had 16 convictions so far, and more to come, more wow. arrests and more convictions to come. And now we've been so successful that we are counseling other communities and other states to do the same and follow our lead. Oh, and one more thing that's important to know. 
even though we started this effort with weak laws in the books, our task force recommended changes in state law. And the Florida legislature responded, and we got a major piece of legislation through, House Bill 807, that has dramatically changed the climate here. And now you've seen a real turnaround. You have seen the industry get cleaned up because no longer does it take 13 counts to qualify someone for prison time. Now you can even get someone a first-degree felony for patient brokering if they do it in, in enough uh, magnitude where you're eligible for up to 30 years in prison. I mean, this is wow. so different. We yeah. have the strongest such law in the books in the country. So we have done a lot in the last couple of years with this task force. And like I said, uh, we're making progress, but there's more work to do. Right. And um, I look. I noticed an article where you were working with, um, I think it's the state attorney in Orange County in California. Yes, we traveled to Orange County to work with them. Orange County is trying to do something like, like Palm Beach County has done, but Orange County is dealing with a statewide law that's almost non-existent. I mean, it is so weak when it comes to patient brokering. It made our original law that was already weak look like you know uh, the uh, you know the, the guillotine. <laughs> and it was it was it was it's so weak, and so we're trying to help them in the state capitol over there in Sacramento, and we're working with the uh, DA's office to help replicate our sober homes task force. A lot of good people out there, but they're finding that some of our sober homes, some of our rogue. Providers are moving out there because it's warm, it's coastal, it's got water, sun and fun, and And the laws are easy. Yeah, the laws are weak. Wow. That, wow. That's, yeah, what can I say about that? So you've also, you've also taken this message to the federal government, if I'm not mistaken. That was another, you testified before the House panel on opioids. Unfortunately, I don't have a date on that one. Was that this year you were talking about that? Yeah, I, I testified uh, I think it was late last year. It was uh, before a House committee. My chief assistant, who's in charge of our Sober Homes Task Force, Alan Johnson, and I went up to D.C. and we testified. It was really an exciting experience because we finally had the ear of federal lawmakers who had pretty much ignored this issue for far too long. Yep. And although the federal government has really not acted on our recommendations, they at least are starting to listen, which is one step in the right direction. But until the federal government actually changes its laws or clarifies them, turns off the spigot, really, yeah. uh, we're going to continue having to fight this fight with one hand tied behind our backs. And we will, yeah. but it would make it a lot easier. The federal government would actually take needed action, which they haven't and they may never. Well, I never know if there's anybody listening from the federal government, but if anybody's listening from the federal government, you need to take note and you need to invite Dave Ehrenberg to come and speak more on this issue because it's not going away. It's just going to simply move around from state to state. I, I can predict this. It'll move around from state to state until the laws become so strict in all of the states that they have to move out of the country. And then they'll figure out another way to make money on, you know, people suffering, which is basically what they're doing. Very true. Very true. Sad, but true. Yep. So what's next for you? What, where, where are you going next? Who will you be talking to next? Well, I am uh, heading a task force within the National District Attorneys Association. And it's a task force of 34 prosecutors from 30 states. And uh, most of us elected. And you have some uh, deputies, but you know we're all uh, very active on this issue. And we're coming up with a first ever uh, working paper on dealing with opioid abuse, best practices, and suggested changes to state, local, federal laws. 
And I think that's going to you know, really surprise people because you would think prosecutors would just be about tougher laws, more jail time, but it's not going to be the case. We're going to deal with this problem in a holistic manner, not just enforcement, but dealing with prevention and rehabilitation. We've got some ideas out there that I think when they get the backing of prosecutors around the country, maybe communities are more willing to try them. Yep. And I'm, you know, so I'm encouraged by that. And then I'm, you know, I'm speaking to groups and, you know, out there just trying to spread the word and trying to offer ourselves as resources for the rest of the country because we're all in this together. Yep. That's true. And you, you are, you are a crusader in the area. Well, you know, you know me for a while, Joni, and I and, uh, we work on these issues for a while. It started first with investigating Purdue Pharma, then it went to fighting the pill mills, then it went to uh, prosecuting uh, heroin traffickers, and uh, now it's focusing on rogue, sober homes and drug treatment providers. Well, I just got to tell you that when I, for one, and I know there's a lot of our listeners as well, you know, applaud all of your efforts and... I am glad that you are in the position you are in looking out for us all. Thank you. You know, it's a labor of love. It's something that I just love to do every day because you really have an impact on families' lives. And I talk to families all the time, and, you know, it's heartbreaking what they've gone through, but they are so courageous. You see now families speaking up, whereas before it, there was a stigma and an embarrassment and shame. And, and, and you know, by keeping silent, it, it unfortunately it makes it more likely other families will go through this because they need to know, families around the, the country need to know that this cuts across every socioeconomic group. That's right. You know, it, this is something that is an epidemic, and it's not, heroin is not, no longer just for, you know, what you used to imagine, junkies shooting up under a bridge somewhere. This is so mainstream these days, and that's why it's important for families when, they, when their loved one is facing an addiction to bring it out and talk about it and, and seek help. And and if tragically, if if you lose your your loved one, there's still you can help prevent others from meeting the same fate, and you can prevent your loved one from dying in vain because you want to save other lives. Other families need to know about this. Do you know what's happening now? Is you're seeing families now during the obituaries for their children are actually mentioning the uh, the addiction, where yep. before they would they would never do it. There would be but some unnamed that, reason for death. No, yeah. it's important. Yep. No, yeah, it's true. We've got to end this, this stigma and this silence because that feeds more addiction and more death. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. We've talked about that over and over and over again on the podcast, the fact that addiction knows no race, no religion, no economic status, no education status. Anybody can become an addict these days, and more and more it is not, there is no such thing as a stereotypical addict. There's no such thing anymore. And, you know, the the thing that we urge over and over again is to get help, you know, get help for someone you know that needs needs it. And like you say, don't sit on it and think it'll go away and that it's some big shame, blame and regret thing. Take action, you know, and we uh, we agree with you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And thank you for spreading the word because, you know, when I do... Uh, podcasts and media appearances, I think that it could actually help save lives by maybe there's a parent out there who are now going to seek help for their child instead of, you know, making excuses, saying, well, no, hey, it's uh, the, the reason why she's 
slurring her words is that, you know, it just has a cold or the reason why she has dropped out of school is it's just it's a bad time for her. You know, the, uh, we need to come to grips that addiction is a brain disease and the stigma, and it can be treated. It's, a, it's, it's difficult. It can be lifelong treatment, but it can be treated. And I just want them to know they're not alone in this. This right. is something that there's a whole community of, of support out there available to them. They just have to take advantage of it. And when they do, make sure that you're going to a reputable treatment center. Do more research on your treatment center than you would on buying a refrigerator. Right. Because just because someone has a good Google page does, uh, or a you know, good ad on Google doesn't make them necessarily a good treatment center. That's right. And also be a little bit suspicious if there's a rehab or some sort of a facility that is offering you free gifts and free plane tickets to send your addicted one down there because chances are it's bogus because I don't think that the legitimate drug rehab programs do that. It is a major red flag if someone yeah. is sending you a free plane ticket to come down to Florida for rehab. Not only is it a red flag, it's a felony. Mm, there so you go. if that's the case, don't do it. Run to a different treatment center. Get away from this one. If there's a broker out there that's offering any free gifts, then that's not a reputable rehab center. Reputable rehab centers don't offer free gifts. They don't patient broker. They don't engage in insurance fraud. And they have uh, – there's actually, without going into it specifically, there are sites out there uh, that will give you certain criteria – for what to look for in a treatment center. Yeah. Do your research out there. There's a there, there's a lot of resources available now. Go to a, go to a a good reputable site and not just one that's put up by the drug treatment providers. You know, you should you can just do enough research out there and and you will find a good one. And you can also ask the rehab facility what is your success rate and how long do you follow up after the person is done with your program. I think those are legitimate you know, questions to ask. Um, yes. Then, then that should make you comfortable. I mean, just right away, if, if, if you're going to a sober home and it's not certified within the state of Florida under the Florida Association of Recovery Residences, then don't go to that sober home. Right. Don't go to an uncertified sober home. If it's a rehab place and you're, and you're getting a benefit to go there, like a free plane ticket, don't go to there. Yep. That's, that's illegal. It's a felony. And there's a reason why they're paying you to play. That's, uh, that's, you're you're going to end up caught up in what's called the Florida shuffle. Yep. You don't want that. Yep. So these are... These are little uh, little tips right off the top of my head that are red flags out there. But you know, for more information, you can go to uh, various sites I, uh, out there without recommending any particular one. But you know, there are some good sites like SAMHSA has a site about it. The, that's the federal government's agency on mental health. Um, the Karen Renaissance has a good site uh, to discuss criteria to look for. I mean, there's there's certain places you can go. Yep. Well, thank you so much, Dave. Thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast today, and. Th- Thank you so much for fighting the good fight. You are my hero. You've been my hero since you started shutting down the pill mills. And you're still my hero because you are doing everything you can to address this issue from your job. And I just, I really appreciate all the work that you do. Thank you so much, Joni. It's it's great talking to you. And I look forward to our next one. Awesome. So I think the main thing I took away from that was that um, he is uh, definitely, um, you know, cracking down on sober homes Mm -hmm. and what he calls rogue rehabs. And I think that, um, you know, I I think it's an I think it's a problem that we have in this country because I think people see there are some unscrupulous people who see oh opioid epidemic we can make money at that yeah you know I witnessed it when I was in a. 12-step rehabs and halfway houses down in Delray Beach and um, 
It was Delray, Boca, and I was in some... Boynton Beach, that area? I was ever in Boynton Beach. I was also in North Miami. Okay. Um, I'm telling you, it's awful. It, it, it is literally a sea of outpatient clinics, detoxes, uh, inpatient rehabs, halfway houses. I mean, there were... So, I remember being down there. I'm like, why are there so many halfway houses? I am telling you, it is big, big, big business. And it's unfortunate that, yeah, some of these people are making money off the opioid crisis, which I think is disgusting. Yeah. But, I mean, Dave gets me really pumped. Yes. Yeah, he got really he got <laughs> really excited. I, I get really excited about it, too. Yeah. I mean, we are on a daily basis trying to fight this thing. Yep. And, um, and in the face of adversity, because then you get, you're doing all this work, and you're doing all this work, and you're trying to just enlighten everybody and, you know... Have have that conversation, and then you get hit with the statistic of there's been a thousand percent increase in fentanyl related deaths in the greater Cincinnati area, and it's just like, <gasps> but at least we're doing our part. We're doing something. We're doing most. We're doing more than most. So I mean, I feel like people look to us as you know some sort of comfort guidance in this whole thing, and we all need that. Um, I, I was an addict in the middle of well, right at the beginning of the opioid crisis. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I was, I, I saw this thing grow and grow and grow and grow. And I saw every, it happen every step of the way. And I was just like, man, this is not going to end well. Right. And, um, I'm interested to see where it goes from here. Uh, it always seems to shock me what happens next. Well, unfortunately, you know, and I think the thing that's so sad is that there are people who don't really care how they make money. And so the sober homes and the rogue, rogue rehabs, you know, there will be laws passed, like I say, that, mm-hmm. and they will start to stiffen up in all of the different states. Right. And they'll go away. And then some unscrupulous individual is going to figure out another way to make money on people's suffering because it just, unfortunately, it's kind of the way it's been. And I think that the more we can get the word out that – um, there's help, there's hope, there's treatment. Yep. And you have to get somebody treatment. Don't say, okay, we want to wait till after the holiday. We want to wait till after our vacation. I want to wait till after summer. I want to wait till after summer. You know, we've talked about it over and over again. What a bad idea that is, mm-hmm. you know? And, you know, get help now. And, yeah. if you, and again, if you want somebody to talk to you and you think, oh, you know, but I'm afraid to say who I am, if you call 877-339-3324, you can talk to Jason anonymously, okay? And you can ask any question you want. Um, Narcanon not only provides treatment, but they also have intervention resources. And, you know, pretty much all you need to do is pick up the phone and call them. That's how hard it is. Or go to the website and chat with somebody online. It's just, it's not that difficult. Yeah, and I'm glad to see in the last couple of weeks more people are calling Yep, from the podcast. And so I want to encourage people to keep calling. And it, even if you just have questions about drugs or you, or you don't understand something yep. or you suspect something, you know, we will educate you. We will teach you um, what to look for in a loved one if you suspect they're using or they're using a drug. You don't know what could happen to them as, you know, as a result of using it. I mean, we will teach you what you need to know and then point you in the right direction to get help. Please call. Glad to see you guys are calling. Let's let's keep it going. Let's keep calling. Keep reaching in. Let's all like get this thing fixed together. Exactly. And we will talk again next week. Absolutely. Take care. 
You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, call 877-339-3324 or visit www.narcononsuncoast.org. Narconon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard. 